the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. We pick it up in verse 18. We're going through our study in the book of Luke. And while Luke is giving us a reliable account of of Christ and to show us that our faith is reliable. Luke certainly doesn't cover everything in Jesus's life. John, in his gospel, he said that if he were to write every, down everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in, in the biggest library in the world to, to hold it. So they're selective for reasons. And so between verse 17 and 18, where Jesus in verse 17, he's fed the 5,000, and now in 18, there's a lot that occurs between those two verses. If we were to measure Jesus's ministry by how popular he was, verse 17 would be the high point of Jesus's ministry, the most popular that he was. But that, of course, means that if that's the high point, then we're going down from here, right? So when we get to verse 18, by the time verse 18 rolls around, things have started to already go downhill. And in fact, many of Jesus's disciples, so not the crowds, but his actual disciples, they've stopped following him. They've left him because the things he was saying were too hard for them. So verse 18 actually takes us away from the Galilee region, all the way up north to Caesarea Philippi, along the foothills of Mount Hermon. And it was a a beautiful, tranquil place filled with trickling streams that eventually feed into and become the Jordan River. And there Jesus decides in this moment to reveal to his disciples his full plan. And as a result, what it means to really be his disciple, what it means to follow him. So chapter 9, we pick it up in verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? And they answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said unto them, whom say you that I am? And Peter answering said, the Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here we see Jesus that he gets alone with the Lord, even though he's with the disciples. Luke places special emphasis on Jesus's prayer life. And and through Luke's revelation, we we see that Jesus prayed a lot. And what better thing to do and what better place to be when you're going through a rough time than to get alone with your heavenly father. Now, even though the disciples were with Jesus, he needed to get alone with his father in this difficult time. John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's been very busy. The disciples, many of them have left him after in John 7, I mean, I'm sorry, John 6 occurs right after the feeding of the 5,000. And the next day they want another free meal. And Jesus is telling them what it means to follow him and that he's the bread of life. And they don't want to hear any of that. And so many of them stop following him. And so in this difficult time, he gets alone with the Lord. And you know, I believe that the question he asked the disciples afterwards, whom do people say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? I believe that that's a direct result of prayer because the questions lead to a conversation where Jesus introduces the hardest things he's had to say to the disciples. He's about to tell them about the cross. 
If you're about to do something very difficult, you probably want to spend some time in prayer first. You know, I wonder how many hurt feelings and misunderstandings could be avoided if we sat at Jesus' feet before we acted, right? I can't tell you how many times I've opened my mouth and I've thought to myself, maybe I should have prayed about that first and regretted what I said. Let's be people who purpose in our hearts to be those who seek God first. So what is Jesus's question? He says, well, whom do people say that I am? Whom do the crowds say that I am? Now, it's interesting. If you read John 7, which occurs right before this, it lists nine different opinions there about Jesus, and they're all talking about it. He's the buzz. A lot of it's bad. Some of it's good, but a lot of buzz around about who Jesus is. Now, the disciples here, they just mention all the good things people have said. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. That's a good person to be compared to, right? Or Elijah. That's always a good person to be compared to. I mean, the greatest prophet of, of Israel. Others say one of the old prophets has risen again. I can't go wrong being compared to Jeremiah or Isaiah or Moses, right? And yet, what's interesting is that even though the disciples mention all these positive opinions about Jesus, are any of those opinions correct? No, Jesus isn't John the Baptist from the dead or Elijah or like you know, one of the old prophets. He's none of those things. So while they're positive opinions about Jesus, they're wrong opinions about Jesus. And they absolutely miss the point of who Jesus is. Because Jesus isn't simply a prophet sent by God to teach an important message. Most people have a positive opinion about Jesus, either as someone, I know everybody doesn't, but most people do, either as, you know, he's someone who helped other people or he said good things or he was an example of a good life or a sacrificial life. Maybe even this morning, that might be your opinion of Jesus. But while those statements are only partial truths, that means they're also partial lies, and no lie is good. God did send Jesus to say good things. He did send Jesus to be our example. But if that's all I believe he is, then I'm believing a lie, because it's not completely true. Jesus now asks the same question uh, to his disciples, but he makes it more personal. He goes, is this what you guys think of me too? He says, but whom say you that I am? And literally in the Greek, it means Jesus phrased it this way. He goes, you, me, what do you think? What's our relationship together? What is our relationship to one another? Now that is a different question. See, because you don't need a relationship with somebody who's a good example or somebody who's helped people or said good things. You can read their book. You can hear about their life. You can admire them from afar. You don't need a relationship with that person to be affected or impacted by them. You can admire them from a distance and go your way. But you can't do that if Jesus is more than that. And because Jesus wants more than that, it's because he is more than that. He's not just a good preacher. He's not just somebody who want, we want to eulogize him and say, what a great life. Let's, let's admire some things about that and, and incorporate it into our own lives and then go our way. Jesus is more than that. And so he wants more than that with us. Peter takes up the challenge of how are we related? What's, what's our relationship to one another? And so Peter's answering says, you're the Christ of God. You're God's Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. The uh, word Christos is the New Testament translation of the Old Testament word Messiah, which means anointed one. It's the word for, for the promised king of Israel. You are God's promised king. And notice the definite article. You are the Christ of God, not a Christ of God. You are the one. Nobody else fills this role but you. That's radically different from all the other opinions that are out there, right? 
Because you can find lots of people that you might want to admire something they've done or said. There's many people down throughout history that, that I greatly admire, and I've learned things from their lives, from their memoirs, or from diaries, or autobiographies, things like that. There's people who have impacted my life, who are still alive, that I, I admire them, and respect them. I listen, maybe they're teaching, or something like that. But Jesus, that, this opinion is way different. You're a one-of-a-kind person. You are God's promised king. And if that's true, then you can't admire Jesus from a distance or just praise some of the things he did. You can't do that with him if he's the Messiah. Now, if Peter's right, it means that he is God in the flesh and worthy of my whole life. It's not just somebody we admire. So the only question then is, is Peter correct? Now, it's interesting. Luke doesn't tell us this part, but Jesus when Peter makes a statement, he actually makes a bigger statement. Luke only gives us the small part. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you're God in the flesh. He makes that, that understanding. I don't think he fully understood what that meant, but he makes that, he makes that statement. And Jesus affirms it. He says, Peter, you are blessed because you came to this conclusion. You are so blessed. Now, he also tells Peter, he says, you didn't come to this conclusion because you, got, you, you figured it out on your own or you put your head together with the other guys and you figured it out or you listened to all the opinions and you figured out the right one. He says, you came to this conclusion because you believed what God said and not what other people said. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. You believe what God has said to you. You believe what God has said instead of what other people have said. It's interesting, there are a lot of opinions out there about Jesus, but you need to study him yourself. You need to study him yourself. I am blown away by the ignorance I hear people say about Jesus. If you don't want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. If you don't want to believe him, that's fine. If you, you don't like him, that's fine. Hey, but you need to at least figure out for yourself what he actually said and what he actually did and not just take somebody else's word for it. You hear people say things, well, Jesus this, or Jesus that. Jesus wasn't even a historical figure. Okay. What about Josephus? Oh, I've heard what, uh, my college professor said that Josephus, you know, that, that, that well, he didn't say that. That was added in there later by a church member. That's a really easy thing to say, but not exactly an easy thing to find because it's not true. Don't let anybody tell you those things. Go find out for yourself. Two times Josephus mentions Jesus. He was a Jewish Roman historian. He's a Jew who worked for the Romans, so not loved by his own people. And he, he wrote a history of, of his own people and then of the, the times where they were at, at odds with the, with the Romans. And in there, he mentions Jesus twice. One of those mentions, it looks like it may have been played with a little bit. The wording may have been changed. But the other one, nobody disputes it at all. The historicity of Jesus is pretty clear. There's not a single person in history who's ever said, oh, we don't even know that was around there in that time. He said, we don't even know if he was real. Nobody. So don't believe what anybody tells you because they told you. Go find out for yourself. Do your own research. Because here's what happens when you do. When you study Jesus, you realize you can't take one of those long-distance opinions that, oh, he's a good guy or he's a good example or he said some good things. You can't. You either accept Jesus' claim that he's the Messiah or you don't. Because when you study him, you realize and see very clearly who he said he was and what he said he would do. Now, while Peter gets Jesus' identity right, he didn't fully understand what being the Messiah meant. If Jesus' closest, most loyal disciples misunderstood, others would too. And so in verse 21, Jesus warns them not to spread this news around. He says, and he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ of God. The phrase there, straightly charged, it means to give a warning implying a threat. 
When I grew up, my dad would give a warning to us. And in his face was always implied a threat. (laughs) If you do not heed this warning, trouble is coming on your head. (laughs) You knew it. You just knew it in his face. You knew it in the tone of his voice. And that's kind of the language that's used here. Probably not like that. But it's a heavy warning that they would not go spreading around that he's the Messiah. This is about as serious as Jesus has ever been with his disciples. Why here? Why with this thing? You think, well, everybody needs to know know this, right? Well, the reason is, is because the crowd had already tried to make Jesus king when he'd done big miracles. When he had fed the 5,000, just one verse prior to this, in another gospel it says they tried to make him king and Jesus had to secretly get away because if the whole Jesus for king political action committee was up, okay? They were all running. And so he had to get away. So why does Jesus doesn't want news to spread? Why is it bad that they want him to be king? Because if that's the only reason they'll follow him, they're going to be disappointed when it doesn't end that way. Because Jesus isn't going to a throne. He's going to a cross. He's going to a cross. So he says to them, this is why. Saying, the Son of Man. He warns them, don't tell anybody this. Why? Because the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, all the religious leaders, and be slain and be raised the third day. Everybody thought Jesus was going to come. He was going to reign. He was going to get rid of the Romans. That's what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus now unveils his plan to the disciples for the first time. This is my course. This is the, the road I'm on. This is the Messiah's job. The word there must means it is necessary. It is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. The word there suffer means to experience pain. Jesus suffered physically through his trial, when he was beaten, where he was scourged, and then, of course, when it culminates in the cross. Jesus also suffered emotionally. His friends deserted him. His best friends denied him. And then the wrath of God for all of our sins was placed upon him. By becoming a man, Jesus understands the pain every person can feel. He knows what it feels like to feel far from God. He can sympathize with all of our struggles, all of our hurts every single one. In addition to that, he says he'll be rejected by the the rulers and the leaders of Israel. When Jesus came, he came to die on the cross. But even though that's true, he legitimately offered the kingdom to Israel. He said, I'll be your king. He offered it to him, the kingdom. He preached about it. Repent for the kingdom is close. It's really close. That Israel rejected their own Messiah shows how necessary the cross is. Because if the nation received God's laws, God's promises, God's blessings, and God's love like none other fell short, then we all need salvation. If they rebelled against the Lord with all they had, we all need the cross. So the fact that he was rejected, it shows that he had to go to the cross. He couldn't come and set up his kingdom then. And so it says he'll be slain. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Death is the price for sin. God must judge sin. Because, I mean, and do you ever get angry at all the stuff you see around you? All the, the junk you see around you? All the, the, the wickedness you see around you? All the, the selfishness you see around you? All the hate you see around you? Do you? Does that ever make you upset? Now, you and I, we blow it in those areas sometimes. So we're not perfect. Can you imagine how it would be to see if you're God and you're perfect and you see all these people that you created doing this to the people you created? God has to deal with sin. It angers him. He's angry every day about it. And so he has to deal with sin. But he doesn't want to. He wants to forgive us. And so Jesus became our sacrifice for sin. See, if Jesus is just a good example of sacrifice, if he's not a sacrifice, if he's just a good example of sacrifice, then guess what, guys? We're still in our sins and eternal death is our judgment. 
if he's not a sacrifice for sin. Thank God he's not a good example of sacrifice, that he is our sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this very clear, and I might not have even had to bring this up maybe 20 years ago, but today it's become very popular in the church to deny the idea that Jesus is our sacrifice for sin, that we don't, he went to the cross as an example of sacrifice, that he was not a sacrifice for sin. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me though. That thought could not be more anti-Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 I'm going to read quite a bit because this is important. Any gospel that does not believe that Jesus is our sacrifice for sin is no gospel. It's bad news. It's not good news. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image, not the very substance of the things, it can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually, every year, make the comers thereunto perfect. When you would come and bring your offering for sin, It could not wipe away your sin. It could only deal with the very reason you were there that time. So the writer explains, for then would they not cease to be offered? If you brought little lammy and, and, you know, or your bull or your ox or whatever, and for your sin, and that took care of all your sin, then why would you ever have to bring an offering again? The proof that they had to keep bringing them showed that those offerings could not take away sin. For it says, if it would have, then the worshipers once purged would have no more conscience of sins. We'd have no more sense of guilt. We'd have no more sense of our need for forgiveness or any of that. But in those very sacrifices, there is a remembrance, a reminder again made of sins every year. You would go and you would get that thing taken care of, but then you'd leave and go, I'm going to be back here again because I'm going to blow it again and I'm going to need to deal with it again. I'm going to need to get it covered again. So even in your forgiveness, you'd be reminded that you weren't fully forgiven. For it is not possible, verse four, that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore? When he, Jesus, comes into the world, he said this. That's not what you want, God. You're not looking for these continual offerings day after day, year after year. Sacrifice and burnt offering, that's not what you wanted. But you wanted me to do something different, a body you have prepared for me. For in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you hast had no pleasure. That didn't satisfy you. That didn't satisfy your wrath for sin. So then I said, I'll do that. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. You said that I I would take away sin, so I'm going to come do that. I'm going to come to do your will, O God. Now, above when he said, sacrifice and offering, he's quoting from the Old Testament here, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, that's not what you wanted. Neither had pleasure therein, which were offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do your will, O God. It shows very clearly that he's taking away the first set the first covenant, those Old Testament sacrifices, so he can establish something new, a new sacrifice. And here it is. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of what? The body of Jesus Christ once for all. He was our sacrifice. He says, and every priest stands daily, every day, ministering and offering oftentimes the very same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, himself, he sat down on the right hand of God from that moment expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. It is finished. No more sacrifice needs to be made. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. And as a result, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For he had said beforehand, he had prophesied beforehand that this is the covenant I will make with them. I'm gonna make a better covenant with them. After those days, says the Lord, I'm gonna put my laws into their hearts and into their minds where I write them. And how can, how can God do that? How can he make us different on the inside? For their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Completely wiped out. 
Now where remission of these is, our sin, there's no more offering for sin. We don't need another offering. Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He is our atonement. He satisfies all of God's righteous requirements. He satisfies all of God's wrath for sin. And as a result, now you and I, our conscience can be clean. We can be fully forgiven and free when we come to Christ. Isn't that awesome? So he had to be slain. If it all ended in death, that still wouldn't be enough though. So Jesus says, and be raised the third day in verse 22. He would have to be raised the third day. For the resurrection is proof that God accepted his sacrifice, that it truly is finished, that sin is conquered, and I can have a new life. If that stirred your heart as I was going through all these things, it's because the gospel is all right here in this one verse. It's all right here. The entire gospel, the son of God became a man, lived like we did, yet without sin, but we rejected him. So he died on the cross for our sins and was raised that we might be justified. That is Jesus's plan. He's revealing it to them. That is the Messiah's mission. Now, he had never said this to them before. They should have known it from the word, but they didn't. But he had never said that to them. So this was like somebody dropping a piano on top of them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us that after Jesus said this, Peter pulled Jesus aside. You don't want to embarrass God when you rebuke him. He pulled Jesus aside and he rebuked him. And he said, no way, Lord, this is not going down like that. That is not how this ends. So in the same day Jesus called Peter especially blessed, he also compares him to Satan. Because <laughs> he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not desire the things of God. You desire the things that man desires. He was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross, and that is a satanic idea. For the idea that Jesus is a good man or just a good example or even a good teacher, they're all satanic, if that idea alone. Our enemy has no problem with those opinions. If we hold that, you hold that opinion of Christ, the devil leave you alone. He don't care because it's a lie and it keeps you at a distance from Jesus. Luke, he ignores that whole discussion between Peter and Jesus and he gets right to Jesus' explanation of why Peter's idea is so off. And this is so important, guys. Jesus, he says that to Peter and then he turns to the disciples and he says, I'm gonna tell you what it's gonna take to follow me. And the reason he does that is because having followers that will only be satisfied with Christ on a throne, it means no real change has occurred in anyone's heart. No real change. If Jesus just expels the Romans and all the other bad people the Jews didn't like, it would mean no real change had occurred in anyone's heart. And it would have left us right as we are. And Jesus said, I don't want those kind of disciples because that's a lie too. And so Jesus, he explains what it means to follow him. In verse 23, he said to them all, listen, a lot of guys have been leaving me. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the definition of a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. Let him means he must. If any man wants to come after me, he must, number one, deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to say no to yourself. Really simple. To say no to yourself. How often do you and I say no to ourselves? I was studying this this week, and man, that was convicting. I had to ask myself, when's the last time you said no to yourself, Will? It had been a while. And so as I was driving home that day, I said no like seven or eight times. I said no to Dunkin' Donuts. I said no to Colmstone Creamery. I said no to all sorts of places that I would never be tempted by. But I was that day. I know that's a silly example, but when's the last time you said no to yourself? That should be an attribute of, of your life as a Christian. That is 
an, a necessary attribute for a Christian's life that you say no to yourself on a regular basis. Of course, that starts with rejecting my trust in my own goodness, right? That's how I get saved. You say no to yourself. Well, I think I'm a good person. And you say, no, well, you're not. You're not a good person. You, you need the cross. You need a savior. And so you say no to yourself and to your own pride, your own idea of your own goodness. And then it culminates, of course, in that Romans 12, one through two, right? Therefore, uh, beloved brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God, because of all God's done for you, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship, and that you renew your mind, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that your life would show what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. That's where it culminates. You start where you, you deny your own goodness, you receive Christ, and then you continue to say no to yourself for the rest of your life as you grow and become that living sacrifice. And that, that's what we do. That is, that is the Christian life. Of course, what's the problem with a living sacrifice? It can get up off the altar. And, and it frequently does, especially when the knife is coming down. I did VR for the first time this week, and there was a T-Rex in front of me. I knew he was not there, and I could not look at that thing because <laughs> it was so real. I had to say, no, I'm going to look at this thing. because. And, but it's the same thing with our lives where we have to say no to ourselves. We see that knife coming. The Lord's saying, I'm going to cut something away you don't need. I'm going to put something to death in your life that you don't need anymore. And you go, yeah, but it's going to hurt. I, I think I need that still. And so we squirm off the altar and we go somewhere else, right? That's the problem with a living sacrifice. It gets up off the altar. So the Christian life is one of placing myself on the altar, back on the altar every single day, which is what the next part is. Not only do we say no to ourselves, but we take up our cross daily. We take up our cross daily. You know, the Romans, they required criminals that were going to crucifixion to carry their cross to the crucifixion site. They'd be paraded around on a death march so other people would learn this is what happens if you do this, and it would be a deterrent. Following Jesus means a daily death march of our plans and desires as we submit everything to God, where we say, Lord, today, not my will, but your will be done. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.